welcome to Marsha's Plate. This is an interview episode where we talk to friends, family, other community members, and anybody else we want to talk to. <laughs> hey brother, hey brother, hey sister, hey sister, hey sibling, how are you? Hey brother, hey brother, hey sister, hey sister, hey sibling, how are you? Hey, what's up? This is an old recording that I did for my YouTube channel. If you don't follow me on YouTube, why are you not? Go ahead and check it out. Um, and because it is Lesbian Visibility Week, I wanted to bring one of my favorite lesbians, one of my closest lesbians friends, and I wanted y'all to hear this conversation on the platform because I just think she is brilliant and she's just one of the premier black feminists of our time and I feel like we're living in a time that people will be talking about 50 60 years from now this is a, a tumultuous time when it comes to LGBTQ rights when it comes to women's rights and so people will be talking about this later on just like we talk about the 60s and the 70s and da 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 da, da. and I think some of the people that I have shared with you across my platform for many many years they're going to be talking about them they're going to be talking about us and these are the type of conversations that they're going to be quoting that they're going to be listening to and I'm just so proud of what I contribute to the archive that is happening in the world right now and this is one of those conversations so enjoy I just wanted to share her brilliance with y'all so y'all can understand why I love her she is one of the people who their content inspires me it sharpens me it just makes me a better woman it makes me a better activist. It makes me um, even more intersectional than I was. I can't really say that um, I didn't have lesbians on my team. <laughs> I can't really say that because I, you know, I've been in community with le with lesbians for years. But it really has enriched my mindset of how much value they have had in my life. How much value that since I was, I remember my first um, queer person in my life that I had ever, that the, my oldest memory of a queer person was a stud black lesbian, Marvella. And she just, she, she just somebody who was so impactful in affirming me when I was five, six years old. And it was so important in my life. And so you, your content and who you are as a person, your vulnerability, your, um, definitely your vulnerability. Because, you know, when we get in activist spaces, we we see people kind of putting on airs. We see people kind of yeah. um, yeah. going along, um, not just activist spaces, just social media and anywhere. Where they're putting on yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we see people putting on airs. We see people putting out how great they're doing. But you have always had an honesty and vulnerability about sharing how you were feeling about love, sharing how you're feeling about... Um, you know, what's going on in the state of the world, your your heart is on your sleeve. And I felt like I was always like that. So, you know, I just, it, it just, it's beautiful seeing somebody mm -hmm. like you and be a reflection of, of who I want to be, who I am. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, I, this is one of my great friends, um, Dr. Montanique 
Mick Eckern. She is the host of Queer Walk Podcast. What up, y'all? I'm Money. I'm Nikita. And we are Queer Walk the Podcast. Podcast for queer women of color. And we exist to excite and unite the Queer Walk community. Yes. I listen to her every time they put an episode out. I just want to introduce her to y'all and share her brilliance for a little, about an hour or two. Welcome. Oh my goodness. Diamond, uh, you know how much I love you. And um, I just want to say this again for the record that um, as just as impactful as like this friendship is for you, like it's it's been like before you even knew me, that this is the impact it has had on me. Like, I don't know where I would have been as a little queer without you. Um, I said this earlier and today is Mother's Day, but like you definitely raised me in a lot of ways when it came to being queer. And, um, you know, I think you, uh, my moon and Pisces, you know, like you are my Pisces reflection for real. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I just like love you so deeply and so much. And, um, like the, the archive that you have created for like black trans thought, um, it, I know you won't ever get your flowers for it while you're still like here, but like, like 50, 60 years from now, like people will really see the, the true, like the true meaning of like what it means for, for such an, an expansive platform to exist and to exist in, in these times, you know, like unprecedented times. Like you just, you just so fucking powerful, and I love you so much, girl. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I I want you to tell me some people that are trans, because the context of this conversation, just to give a little context, the reason why I wanted to have her, a black lesbian queer identified woman, is because a lot of times our narrative and our connection and coalition is erased in our history. It is, you know, it is whitewashed. It is cis washed. It is head washed. It is, you know, all these things into, um, into erasing our coalition. And one of those moments is the Stonewall moment. Stonewall, what the story that we, the legend that we hear about and that we kind of are in this, because there's a trans renaissance happening. Um, and we have been in the shadows for a long time. Um, there's this, there's this legend of Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera throwing the bottle and really mm-hmm. just getting popping at Stonewall, which is absolutely true. But there's another person, Stormy, um, how do you say her last name? The Larvery? The Larvery, all that good stuff. Stormy was a butch lesbian woman and she was a part of that rebellion. She was a part yeah. of that uprising. She was a part of that. And I don't, I hate that I didn't know about her. She died in her late 90s. Yes, she was like 97. Yeah. yeah. And so she was a part of it. And I wanted to make sure that I gave honor to her. And I wanted to highlight and talk about a little bit about the coalition and how it has been erased. Why do you think it has been erased? And why it's important for us not to let it be erased? I feel like last year was just like Stormy's year like uh she i feel like her um her spirit if you believe that you know like she, her ancestral movement it was just uh, it was just moving through like every space i went i felt like she was showing up and i was learning more about her 
So um, for folks who like maybe don't know Stormy's story, I just want to share a little bit and then answer your question about like our legacies being so connected as like black lesbian communities, black trans women communities, and then like, you know, the Venn diagram of that like black trans lesbians. But um, yeah, so the story, how I um, have heard it and read it is that Stormy was, um, so this is my little ad libs on it. I, I picture her as like the light skinned fuck boy studs of today. Like, yeah. <laughs> she was, was well known, right? Like everybody knew Stormy. So she was coming um, through to Stonewall that night and um, the cops have followed her because uh, I, I don't, I think most folks are familiar with, but there used to be these laws around. Like you have to have on like three articles of clothing that match the gender you were assigned, or you would be like arrested for impersonating a man or impersonating. They're called, a woman. They were a lot of places called the masquerade laws. Masquerade laws, yeah. Um, and and they would like ruin your life, right? They would like publish your name where you work in newspaper, and you're not even convicted of anything, right? They just arrest you, um, and and they would just like. Publish all of it, and it could be something that they could use to put you in mental asylums as well. Right. Like these right. Kind of arrests and these repetitious arrests, they can put you in mental. Your parents can get them, can sign to get you yep. to a mental institution. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And, and like involuntary holds. Yeah. yeah. And I talk. I've talked about like the mental mental health. Um. Organizations need to be paying reparations to queer folks for everything that they did. But that's another conversation. So, yeah. So, like, <laughs> Stormy had been routinely harassed by the police because she was a drag king. She was, like, um, masculine presenting most days, you know, um, and was, like, butchy. She was a butch. Um, and so, um, or, like, a dyke, because that's our word, black word. <laughs> uh, and so she was going to Stonewall that night, and the police fo- actually followed her to Stonewall. And um, she had just had it. And so got into like a fight with the police, was defending herself against them, harassing her. Um, And one of them like hit her in the head with like a nightstick or a club or something. And so she was like all bloody. They were handcuffing her. And that this this is the time, like during all this commotion that um, Mama Marsha was showing up because she was kind of like infamously known to be showing up really late, like right before the let out. Cause she was gonna come through with a look and <laughs> and be cute and just like want to be seen yeah, exactly with the, the floral headdress or like a gown. Um, and so Marsha shows up like as all this commotion is happening and Stormy is screaming back at them like, uh, "Is anybody gonna do something? Like, are y'all gonna do something?" And Marsha was the one who did something, right? Like, depending yeah. on who tells the story. She she either threw a shot glass, a brick, <laughs> a, something. a bottle. So we always she threw something. <laughs> she threw something. Uh, uh, maybe it was a shoe. She took a shoe off. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, she threw a blunt object at the, <laughs> at the police and kind of like kicked off what we know to be like this like three day riot, right? Um, uh, which is which was really um black. Black and Latinx 
PO, um, black and Latinx queer folk resistance to police brutality. That's right. really what Stonewall was. Because they, you know, they have completely whitewashed it. But them white folks got the fuck up out of there when Stormy was getting beat by them police. Right. You know? And it's like, we, we, need, to recognize, we need to recognize that as Respectability well. politics was still a part of this. Yeah. They it was they would sneak off with their little fingers, yeah. little church fingers. I'm out of here. Y'all gonna get me messed. We just described how there can be consequences to this, and yeah. they were like, Mm-mm, "These these unsavorables, <laughs> these unsavory folks, yeah, are not about yeah. to get me messed up." Y'all acting like them crazy black folks. You know, we know because we see it now. Right, <laughs> hey, hey, right, yeah, and this is. Nikita has taught me so much about like labor history, but this also brings up like it, it is no accident that Stormy was a uh, dyke, right? Like because um like the dykes, the bull daggers, the studs, those were like the the disrespectable lesbians, right? They were not femme, they weren't white, they weren't um wealthy, you know, they were working class, poor, a lot, a lot of them homeless. Um and so there's there's like no no accident that 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 Stormy was a dyke, right? And and that these are the folks, the black trans women and the black dykes that nobody else in that queer community was showing up for. But in that moment, Marsha saw Stormy as her people, right? And and Stormy, I I like like to believe because you know she lived to be really old. Um, and would walk the streets of Harlem and Brooklyn with a shotgun saying that she was protecting her daughters, right? Which were black queer women. Um, and I think they saw each other in that moment. Like none of these other people have us, but us. Right. And so, and, and Marsha knew the risk too, right? And like, even, even I think about like Sylvia Rivera climbing in the window of like that New York legislator, like they knew the risk and they did it anyway because they saw each other. Right. And like a, too often, we're the only ones who see each other. And you're, you're. Uh, I love that you invited me to this conversation. I love you so much um, because our legacies as like Black trans women and Black lesbians still till today we see how they get like separated. And I was like, but I think in like these risk assessments that people do around like housing. Um, violence against us and like all these things I feel like um, like our data or or our experiences get like invisibilized or or like sensationalized right there's no like real accounting for our lives like just like I was talking about with school like we become demographics and statistics and not lived experiences right <laughs> and so we're the only ones who have seen who have seen each other through that. So I think right. about Stormy on the East Coast. I think about Jewel Tice Williams on the West Coast. Right. And like the, the spaces that she created for black queer women, black trans women, um, black folks in general through the um, the HIV crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Because like you said, she went through her club and her building community. You were talking about earlier how she brought in during the AIDS epidemic, she, you know, she created, what did you call it? 
like a triage, like a HIV triage mm-hmm. in the in the backyard of a club. Yeah. Or single single mothers dealing with HIV, for trans mm-hmm. women, for lesbians, for whoever was dealing with yeah. the epidemic. She was literally building community and 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 building a place where they can take care of you, where she can take care of them and community can take care of them. And we see that all the time. I was saying earlier, you know, we know within our, the blacks, black women period, we know the history of how much cishet black women have sacrificed it in building um, how this country was built on the backs and through the legs of right. black women. Right. Um, yeah. We know that, but we also know as queer black women, me and you, we also know that they sometimes fall short and throw people away when they don't right. when they don't yep. fit um, the respectability politics that mm-hmm. you know that you know that is acceptable. So sometimes they throw it away. And it is us who step up and yeah. when, when you were talking about Nikita talking about we also when you're on the margins, you fall through the cracks. We're the ones in the cracks to hold people up, to get people yeah. back in place, to 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 be um, you know, to be that kind of anchor. And I and I see that and recently I went to a panel at um at University of Houston and I saw a black trans woman and a black lesbian on the panel and I had never heard it verbalized, but the black lesbian was like, yo, when I was coming out and my mother kicked me out as a black lesbian, I wasn't welcome in her home. I slept on the floor of this woman right here, this black trans woman when I was younger. So it's, she's not just a mother for black trans women. She's, she was a mother for me. She was especially speaking now on Mother's Day. We are out here mothering people. I, and, and I hadn't heard it visualized. I hadn't heard it verbalized. But I had visualized it in my younger years. I remember um, black lesbians coming to my house. Because I, I had an apartment when I was 16. Coming to my house to smoke. We all were smoking. <laughs> coming to my house to relax, mm-hmm. to, to vent. So I remember mm-hmm. them coming to my house and just going off about their mother, be calling them dykes and calling them bulldozers in a disrespectful way, but mm-hmm. venting to me, but they had to go back home to their mama because we was only in our teens. Mm-hmm. I remember my um, a girl named Ray who was sleeping on a pallet just like the Butch Queens was sleeping on the pallet of a trans woman's house. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, I had seen it visualized. I had seen it actualized that, we were in community with black lesbians. I had a I had a best not I want to say best friend, but a really really good friend in high school named Trina, basketball player, all the classic dyke stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know she was a basketball player, raised to the back, and you know she was kind of scared to open up and tell me that she was a lesbian because she wasn't really totally comfortable with people knowing. Mm-hmm. But I was a first per- first person that she came out to, and so. Yes. She knew she could come to my house and talk about all the dyke stuff she wants. At that yeah. time, I wasn't even thinking about <laughs> the pussy in any kind of way. But she was comfortable <laughs> to tell me about all her exploits because she didn't have nobody else to tell her. And I would just listen and laugh and just make her feel loved. And she would make me feel loved because I was super isolated. So I know for a fact in my in my mind and my lived experiences, even though we have not been they have not been taken account. They have not been taken the data. I know based on me living in this country, all the places I live, that we are in community with each other and building with each mm-hmm. other. And even though y'all may not see it in the numbers, we know it because we live. It. We know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that story, every time you tell it about that, like that woman giving like credit to like, I slept on this woman's couch when like my mother threw me out. It's like that. I get it. Right. Cause as like, as black women, I think so hard it's really hard to swallow all the ways in which like the things are stacked against us. Right. And so, so sometimes like cis het black women, they like try to hold on to that last ounce of anything that might be considered a privileged identity and like, mm. uh, throwing away the rest of us. Right. It's like, just, if I can just have one bit of access in this like goddamn society, like just let me have it. But for those of us who have, like, <laughs> experience, like, I think, you know, that cis privilege gets, like, real um, slippery when you're a black lesbian, you know? And it's, like, it, it feels, like, contextually specific. Then then you really get revealed, like, all the community that you do have, like, the folks um, that have, we have nothing to lose but our chains, is what Asada said, right? And it's, like, that's, yeah. that's what gets revealed when you end up slipping through all the cracks. It's like, who's there holding us up? It's us. Um, I said this earlier too, when when we were talking earlier, but like, I I see it now. So I know it's the case. And there are still like black lesbians, black trans women from that era who tell us it's the case. You know, like Miss Major tells us that was the case. Angela Davis tells us that was the case. Like it there was no one there but the black queer women, you know? And it's like, I think about us as um, the the cultural create, like, what was I, what was I saying earlier? Like the cultural historians, like we keep the record, right? Yeah. Like um, it, it's always We're, been us. Shout out to Monica Roberts. We are the griots. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and even the, it's, it's issue that you bring up Miss Major, because even, and we're talking about it in the context of um, the coalition between black lesbians and black um, trans women, but also what Ms. Major taught me in, in, in her film that, that men of power, even though they were privileged, they knew the smart ones knew to reach out to us to be mm-hmm. able to make movements work. They knew when we talk about her in Attica prison end of in when, 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 um, a black his name was black something i can't remember it's black something but he was one of the leaders trying to to lead the attica strike and he was like i gotta talk to miss majors i gotta get her to corral her people too because we gotta all be together when we talk about newton and the letter he wrote about the lgbt community right like yo we gotta we gotta fix this even you know there's some problematic shit that he had going on too but um within the black panther but that letter they knew, hey, we have to, we have to work with these people are just, are oppressed. When we talk about Martin Luther King in his coalition with um, Bayard Rustin and building, building everything, um, yeah, yeah. Building the structure of the March on Washington and all the other, mm-hmm. all the organizing that um, Bayard laid out as the architect, we, mm-hmm. this is something we know existed. Right. We know right. it's getting raised. Yeah, yeah, and even like, like in our current struggles for liberation, we see it. The hardcore activists, always black queer women, always from like, uh, I think about like the SNAP coalition in Atlanta. Like you want to, any struggle for liberation, you you can't talk about without talking about it impacting black queer women. 
at all. Like, so, so if you talk about prison abolition, then, then okay, you need to be talking about like all these black trans women who have been like um, charged, detained, and and criminalized for existing as who they are for defending themselves, like C.C. McDonald, you know, it's like, like if you want to have these conversations, then you need to have it to the people who are, like, really impacted by these systems, right? Yeah. And, yeah, like, even, like, right now, um, with, like, all the horrendous things that are happening, like, in the world, we still got to deal with, as Black folks, like, um, vigilantes and white supremacists in cops' uniforms, like who take our lives from us before we should ever like leave this this iteration of existing. Right. And the people who always organize these movements are black queer women. Like Black Lives Matter was started by black queer women. You know, it's like the the folks who are um like making sure that our that our stories don't die with our lives. I, the only people I see are black queer women doing that work. Yeah. Now, whether, whether or not we know that they're queer, we could debate. Like, we could talk about that. Oh, God. That's, yes. that's considered because what, what I hope never happens with me um, and that I've seen happen a lot with like movements in the past is that people will want to omit that um, this black woman was, I mean, it happens all the time with trans folks, right? Like completely erased that they're trans. And then it's like years later, we we find out that, oh my God, this was a trans person doing this. Um, or it happens like currently with uh, like black lesbians, like everybody wants to interview like these, these um, foremothers of like feminism, but nobody wants to bring up the fact that they dykes. Like everybody, you know, like they are. You know, I'm like, I'm like, hello. Um, I think we like that's that's what also looks like freedom to me is that um, we don't we don't have to start hiding parts of ourselves or qualifying parts of ourselves that we get to like be all of who we are simultaneously and our greatness because that's that's what makes it. Um, this isn't just an identity we hold, right? It changes the way you see the world, right? Yes. <laughs> like you're, yeah, like it's, it's like a lens you have, um, that other people just don't have. Um, whether you want to call it like a, a gaydar or like being able to like read stuff in a different way. It is the literacy and a lens that other people just don't have who don't have these identities. And we're born um, into it. Right. And it's, it's, we've been practicing it. I've been practicing. I could see how all these isms and all of these structures were affecting me in junior high. So when you're learning about black feminist theory, if you're a white woman and you learn about black feminist, you're just now reading bell hooks in grad school. Baby, I've been doing this, working this out, what she's teaching you. I've been working this out since junior high, since elementary. So we've right. already built this kind of, not saying that it doesn't have value for you. Go ahead, get you, get some value. But we've all, we're so far past you. That's why you need right. to come to us when, when, you're, right. when you're trying to build coalition, when you're trying to build movement, you got to come to us. That's what, that's what you, when you said expertise, that's exactly what I think about. Yeah. Like you got, I, I got 30 years of experience of diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Okay. Like, <laughs> like yeah. 
Yeah. Ain't and no it, diploma give me that. It was nothing. my lived experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in, in your case, like, like they will hear, in your case, literally you getting your doctrine was even more sharpening of that, yeah. <laughs> of that education mm-hmm. when you really was just trying to learn how to be a family therapist. <laughs> That's you know, Diamond, I say that so much. I'm like, I'm just out here trying to be a therapist and I need therapy to process the shit that I've experienced trying to be a therapist. Like, <laughs> like what? Are you kidding me? I just want, yeah, it's like every step of the way it's been a fight. And I know it's not a fight because the work I'm doing is not needed and necessary. It's like, who else? This is the thing that gets me about this stuff because you don't want us in your office. You don't want to sit there and process the painful experiences and the joy that we experience as like black queer women. You don't want to do that work. So why not get the fuck out my way and let me do it? Because you don't want to do it anyway. Like if I'm telling you a, a joy or a celebration that I have in my life is fascinating to you. If I'm telling you my pain, you it is so beyond anything you've experienced that you can't comprehend it. You can't find the humanity within yourself to touch on like why I'm hurting from this. So like why not let someone who does want to do that who can do it, who has the capacity, do it. Just like, get out of my way. That's all I need them to do. Um, you know, and it's like, I need these credentials so that I can sign the paperwork for the next generation of Black queer therapists who are going to do this work. Oh my God, I want to thank all of our new patrons this week. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So not only are you helping to sustain this particular podcast, you know, I also donate to other podcasts. I donate to other organizations. I have my finger on the post of the community. And I know a lot of grassroots organizations that are doing great work out here. So you're not only helping to sustain us, you're helping to sustain other people in a community. Because I put my money where my mouth is. You know, that's just the kind of bitch I am. Community is fuck. <laughs> so thank you. I really, really appreciate you. And if you have not become a patron, why have you not? You can donate as low as a dollar a month. It doesn't matter. Anything helps. Please. Do I have to play Sarah McLaughlin and show you puppies? Like, what do I have to do? Do I have to do resort to what the white people do to get you to give them money? <laughs> All righty. Anyway, thank y'all. And the Patreon and PayPal link is at the bottom. Back to the show. So I want to talk about your experience um, in school. So tell me about you. You are a doctoral um, graduate now. Now you're a doctor. You, yes. you know, tell me about your school experience. Oh, gosh. Where do I start? Okay, so first, I feel like I need to um, defend myself. I never set out to be in school forever, okay? (laughs) (laughs) That was not the plan. Um, It just worked out that way. But I do remember, like, very early, I always, um, I tell my mom this a lot, like, she was an activist. Like, I I could be nobody else but who I am because of her being my mom. Um, I remember in, like, 
or like early, early, like fifth, sixth grade, like her fighting with my teachers, like my child is bored. And so like, you need to give her like more things that are going to challenge her. Like she is reading books that are like not at a fifth grade level. Like we need, we need to like fan this flame basically. And, um, and I think it's cause my mom always wanted to go to college. You know, she always wanted to, to be that girl, you know, Hillman grad, you know? <laughs> and so, um, that wasn't an option for her. Um, and so she always wanted to make sure that it was an option for me. And, um, like, yeah. So just like always really pushed me. I took like this, the, all these specialized exams to get into like the really good schools in New York. Uh, cause like it is. So you have to get accepted to high school in New York. I don't know if it's still the same because it's been like 15 years since I've done that. But uh, when I was in middle school, you had to be accepted into high schools. It's not just like you go to your neighborhood high school. Um, and so I took this exam to get accepted into like specialized high schools with, you know, like talented and gifted students and all this. And so she always, always, always pushed me. Um, and so I just looked around me in school and I was like, y'all don't think that I could like know some shit. Like I remember having this like very clear thought in ninth grade of like, y'all don't think that we know things like these, y'all are our teachers, but y'all don't believe that we can learn. Right. Like y'all don't believe. Or or that we read enough and we could know something that you don't know. Exactly. 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 Um, and so at that moment I decided that I was going to go to college and I wasn't going to do it in New York because first of all, I'm a first generation college student. I know nothing about, uh, colleges in New York. <laughs> I knew about colleges that either my, uh, family members were like, um, fans of their, uh, teams, you know? So Auburn is known for its football program and for its basketball, you know? That like Charles Barkley went there, so you know, like my dad was like an Auburn fan, and my my like uncles knew about like Auburn because of football. Um, my aunt always wanted to go to Tuskegee, which is right down the street from Auburn. So I was like, okay, well, I, these are colleges, and I want to go to college, so I'm gonna apply to these. Got accepted like early admission to Auburn with a full ride scholarship, and my mom was like, well, we gonna move to Alabama then. <laughs> she like she didn't even think about it like it wasn't even a it wasn't it wasn't like a you go off to college and we'll see you later she was like we're gonna wrap this shit up in queens and we're gonna move to alabama because you gotta go to college um and so i went <laughs> i went um yeah and left queens that was like the last time i lived in the city it was like what was that like junior year of high school mm-hmm. um and which, so, which, which gives a whole nother context because you know, of course, I was watching the live when you was um, on Instagram and you was defending, <laughs> and that was just beautiful seeing you know all your people support you. But just having your mother there that gives a whole different context of why it was such an important thing for her to be there, being you are the first in, in yeah. your family to do it, and then for her to make that sacrifice to move all the way down to Alabama, and mm-hmm. then you know, coming to your dissertation and you defending it with distinction and really just killing it and her being yeah. there, your sister being there. 
I can, it gives a whole, I knew how important it was, of course, even if that, these things that didn't happen, but just that kind of sacrifice and that dedication to her children as a single mother, that's what black women do. And it's amazing um, yeah. to, to just visualize that experience and understand how important that was to have her there during your defense. Yes. Yes. Like every, um, the most, so <laughs> the, the moments from my childhood that I remember the most are moments of my mom, like sticking up for me and my sisters academically. Right. So, um, okay. I, I will, I will censor this and be like, she allegedly, um, <laughs> punched my principal in the face because when I moved to Alabama, um, I, I had to graduate from an Alabama high school, long story, whatever, um, technicalities to like get my scholarship. But yeah. he was like, your little brown self, and you know he didn't want to say that, but he was like, your little brown self is never going to be my valedictorian because I had the highest GPA in the grade. And he was like, we're not going to select valedictorian by GPA this year. We're going to select it by whatever the fuck ever. And my mom like hit that man, like straight up hit him, allegedly. So, <laughs> you know, so, and it's like those, those moments, it didn't just show me that like, oh, my mama care about me and she's not going to let me be disrespected. But it also like showed me how important she thought education was, you know, like, like nothing, she was not going to let nothing and no one stand in my way of being, um, the smart one that she used to say, like as smart as I wanted to be. And, and, um, and even like the community around that. Right. So it's like, I just think about, I grew up, you know, in, on something Boulevard in, in Queens and it's like poor black Latinx, you know, like all the things, um, of Queens. And, and I just remember like people in the neighborhood being like, Oh, leave her alone. Like she's smart, you know? <laughs> so I just felt like, I had to, I had to do these things because, you know, like Maya Angelou said, like when you walk into a space, you walk in with like all of your ancestors and like all these people, you're never alone. And I felt like I had to do this to show my mom that like all the sacrifices she made were like not in vain. You know, it's like, I was, I was listening. I was watching. Like you told me to read something. I, I read it. You, <laughs> you know, like I, um, I wrote, you know, she, she would always like encourage me to keep a, a diary or a journal. And I'm like, look on me. I wrote something that's distinct. <laughs> so, yeah, so, I felt like I was doing okay at my defense until she ran up to me and grabbed me. And that's when I just broke. I just <laughs> cried, cried. Like, <laughs> yeah. So tell me about coming okay so you came down to alabama so tell me about because you weren't out you weren't out in high school were you no. mm, girl so out is complicated right because <laughs> <laughs> i i definitely was not um like calling myself a lesbian in high school um i was like I was, I was such a little dyke when I think about it, but like, I was always the friend who would be like, oh, he's cute. You should go talk to him. Go talk to him. Right. Um, I had, I had like Carmelo Anthony, everything. I was like such a Carmelo Anthony stan. Uh, I had, 
my little sister had posted this picture of me, um, but I had like cards on my binder and on my um <laughs> my locker. It was like a Hummer, the Pistons, and Lil Fizz, right? So obviously, <laughs> like I was so obviously a little dyke, but um, I definitely didn't have any words for like liking or being attracted to women. Um, I used to say, like, yeah, everybody thinks women are cute, but like you marry a man. You know, like that's that's what I was saying at high school. Um, meanwhile, I was like making out with half the girls in my graduating class, right? So pulling. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Homecoming queen, all this, you know. <laughs> but I just um yeah, I just didn't name it. It wasn't mm-hmm. a thing. It would always be like, oh, you want to practice kissing? So, like, your boyfriend can be happy or blah, 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 or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, it was very that. And then my first two years of undergrad, still not. Like, I was, I said to one of my friends, I was like, <laughs> you you know that meme where it's it's like one of them um Thanksgiving clapback memes where it's like, oh, so how is like dating going? Oh, I'm just focusing on my schoolwork. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> I was like, you know, I'm just you know, I'm just out here trying to do my schoolwork, uh, get this degree. So I didn't talk to anybody in college until like junior year. And I started, you know, like meeting girls. We used to have these things called uh, Tea Tuesdays. It was like all the queers from like all the local schools would come. And <laughs> Tuesday nights, you know, I think, did I, meet, did I meet my first girlfriend there or at the sorority thing? Either way, yeah. So it was like junior year where I really started being like, okay, I am not straight. So tell me about some of the people that you met while you were in undergrad that were queer women that really um, built community with you during that time. Hmm. So I didn't have, I didn't have like queer women community. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, uh, I was saying this before, like I knew I wasn't the only black lesbian on my campus. Cause like, obviously <laughs> And, um, there's like a lot of girls who were on my campus who were like dating and just didn't say anything. I don't know. Like, I feel like I was the, I wasn't the only black lesbian, but I was the only one who like saw the things in the world that had to change in order for like us to be, um, us to have room to exist. Right. Right. And so I didn't have a lot of community. The only person that was really my friend after I started to name that I wasn't straight was um, the only only black uh, trans girl on my campus. And I still to this day, Diamond, I cannot tell you how we met. Like we were not in the same major. We were not even the same year. Uh, so in college, it was like clicks. So it was like the New York click. The the Alabama click, you know, like the DC click. I was I was in the New York click. Um, she was from Alabama, so like we there was. I really truly think it was nothing but like queer ancestors how we cross paths. But she she was like my only friend for like a solid year. 
Mm. Um, and we would just like, just like randomly bump into each other and end up talking for three hours um, about stuff and about how like everybody's so scared to be out, you know, and just like say it and name it. And everybody want to come to Tea Tuesdays, but don't nobody want to, you know, <laughs> show up to the right. meeting. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, me and her are still friends. We still, you know, are in contact, uh, commenting on each other's Instagrams and she created that space. You know, she created like Tea Tuesdays and she definitely created, um, language for me that I didn't know. I just didn't know it. Um, I was like young when I left the city. So I was not, you know, I was not the peer girl. I wasn't like going to the clubs because I was like 15. So, <laughs> so all I knew was like my block, really. Mm-hmm. All I knew was like Sufton Boulevard. And um, when I met her in undergrad, like that was when I started having language for things because she knew, you know, <laughs> like, wow. uh, and so she was like, oh, so, so you're a femme. You know, like, and you're attracted to studs or you're a femme and like you dated a like stem or no label or whatever. And I'm just like, oh, what? You know? <laughs> um, yeah. And, and I remember her saying to me, like, I'm just so glad. Like, I knew you was gay when I first met you, but I'm just so glad that you're a femme because we can like do stuff together. You know, like we could do hair together. We can do all this. I'm like, well, I, Ooh, I'm awful at makeup, but uh, <laughs> I, got, I got you on the braids, girl. So. It was similar. It was similar to that in um, in the in the clicky thing in in Jackson State. It I, I, we're that was a little bit early on, so we hadn't had a much of the change. It was um, that y'all may have had, but it, I went to college, and my freshman year was 2000, and so. Like you said, in the same thing, it was the clique of regional cliques where the New Yorkers or the East Coast folks would be in a clique, um, Detroit, Chicago, Midwest people would be in a clique, yep. Texas would be in a clique, New Orleans would be in a clique, yep. Um, yep. Georgia would be in a clique. So, but because I was queer, because I was trans, I didn't really fit in anybody's clique. There was like maybe one, one person out of each one of those groups that I could actually like. You get what I'm saying? Like, I knew some New Yorkers that I like. I knew some Georgia people that I like. So I could maneuver with the right person in any clique that was willing to let me be around it or be be in it. But when it comes to queer folks, this is was the strangest thing that I had, I had ever experienced in my life thus far. Usually, in, in high school, in church, in places, social places... The queer folks, we immediately, the queer people that I could tell was queer, we immediately would come together. Or um, the cis women, um, the butch queens, the lesbians, we would immediately come together back in Indianapolis. But for some reason, when I got to this school, I felt so alone because even those people were isolating me. I had never experienced that. Like all the butch queens that was in college were all like, closeted yeah weirdly closeted because they were flamboyant acting yeah i was like you are clearly gay (laughs) so why when i come into the cafeteria and sit down why right why are you leaving the table with the cis people yeah and so it was 
really, really strange. And but there were people who I guess I would have been hurt. I guess that was mm-hmm. what it was. I was mm-hmm. giving the language. I was like, I've never experienced this. I've never experienced um, in my city. There were people who were living full time, quote unquote, full time mm-hmm. as women in Jackson. Jackson is Mississippi. So mm-hmm. it's a total different. To- it was a total difference. So this is how they had to survive. There was a girl yeah. literally with implants who would go to work at go to work as a boy and wear big um, shirts and um, and blazers to cover up her breasts and would have mm-hmm. a beard and would go home, shave and and be be herself. And after work hours and she had to do this or she would not work it was not like other places where they would let them just work no um it was literally only one girl who was living full-time in jackson um um and she didn't go to school but that was living in the city and her name was quiche and it was only reason why she was able to do it because she was a sex worker and she was uh, um and she stunned like she wrote good checks <laughs> quote mm-hmm. bad checks. so she was able to survive off of that. And so she could be full-time. But the rest of the girls were not full-time. It was like two, two other ones. But yeah. coming to my school, they made me. They would come to my school just to see me. Like, mm-hmm. they was like, oh, my God, it's a full-time girl going to Jackson State. And I was like, how is this so big to y'all? I didn't understand mm-hmm. it. But what mm-hmm. I didn't know is that in 2000, and, I'm not 2000, in 1996, this is four years before me. I didn't know about it until I met her, there was a trans girl who the RA let come into, they let the boy, they unlocked her room and let the boys go into her room and beat her. What? Mm-hmm. And so previously to me going to Jackson State, that mm-hmm. is what happened four years before me. And mm-hmm. I didn't know about that. And people were saying, that's why it was a big deal that I was going there. That mm-hmm. I was living on campus. I didn't yeah. know it, but everybody right. was like, people would pop up at the school. We heard about you. Like, even like right. news outlets and shit. So, I didn't feel like I was a part of community at all. Yeah. I felt like I, I was super, super isolated. It wasn't until like maybe mid to the middle of the second semester of my freshman year that I really started to build community and then mm-hmm. it got better and better over each year that I was mm-hmm. there but it felt super super isolating and I did have a person and he was actually a, a um a butch queen at the time that transitioned later there was a person um we're not friends anymore over personal stuff but um at the time it was a cis woman it was a butch queen and then it was a lesbian that was like mm-hmm. yo this is yeah, and, yeah, mm-hmm. and and it just started to be, it just started to grow like that. Mm-hmm. They are introducing me to somebody. They'll introduce, yeah. me and, and yeah. I then it started to be where oh, I'm coming into cafeteria, and we all got our own table now. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I I stayed at Auburn for my master's degree, um, and like really because a lot of the like black queer folks that I had built community with were like they weren't graduating and it's not because you know academics blah 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 it's because of all the things that black queer folks always face right like money um supported being supported housing 
you know, like all these things. So yeah, it, at first it was like me and her and then my friend Melissa, who's, you know, sis head, like cute little black girl from Alabama. And, <laughs> and, uh, and then it was like this, this guy who like later, uh, came out after graduation as gay and just the four, it was like the four of us this like you know hodgepodge uh, put together group of friends and it just started to grow and, and before you knew it it's like by the end of my um my senior year we had like a table in in the student union everybody know we sit there we coming in you know and it was it didn't feel as like scary and silent as when i first got to campus cuz i i mean I've always been this girl because I love basketball and I love women. So, you know, I was like at, at the, the basketball games. I knew that the, the girls on the team were gay. I knew their girlfriends, but like nobody was saying it, you know, and I didn't know if there was like some kind of rule at Auburn because Auburn was a hella conservative campus. And I know that like other schools like um, like Baylor or um, Clemson, they have like rules where their their athletes literally can't say that they're gay, right? right. So, so I didn't know if that was a thing at Auburn, but I would just see all of the and I'm and I'm like femme, so I feel like I'm femme ish. I also feel like I'm I'm very dykey. So like, how could you not tell that I'm gay? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like Nikita is like a femme Oreo. She's like you know femme. On the inside, stud on the outside. I'm like a stud Oreo. I'm like stud on the inside, fem on the outside. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's like I didn't know if it was that, like, like because the masculine presenting girls didn't want to be friends with me because it automatically has to be sexual if somebody presents their gender differently than you. But yeah, it was just us. It was exactly the same. And I started at Auburn in 2007. Mm. Yeah. Tell me about um, once you I, I, I've heard that um, similar story in uh, in undergrad for a lot of queer folks that actually got through it. Tell me. But my, I know me. I didn't want to go to grad school <laughs> because I didn't want to deal with. I did, didn't want to deal with school anymore. I was like, I'm about to. And plus, I was going through the issues with getting custody of my brother and, you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff. I was dealing with life issues. But mm -hmm. tell me about your experience um, as a black queer woman and not necessarily socially, but structurally in the system of going to a PWI and yeah. what some of the obstacles you as a black queer woman have come up against in getting your higher education. Yeah. Um, so I think in undergrad, I went to, I went to a big school. Uh, you're kind of just like one, you're just a number at that point. And so the institutional stuff is, is your tuition paid? Do you have a place to stay? Basically that yeah. was it because you could be anybody, a uh, student, you know, it was like on a campus that big, it's whatever. Like my history class was like 250 people, you know? So it's like, um, even your major classes uh, are still big because the, the campus is just so big. And I, I think I'm thankful that I went to an undergrad that was that big because I did get through in a lot of ways. You know, it's like my professors didn't know me well enough to do some fuck shit, you know? <laughs> like, 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 like in high school or... Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's like, I'm going to just go in, I'm going to turn this tape in, I'm going to take this test and I'm going to chunk my deuces and get this degree. So, like, in undergrad, 
aside from there being like no no um like cultural centers for black students there were no lgbt groups when i was at auburn um you know aside from like those kind of structural uh what it's like a violence by omission right because it's like where the fuck am i at this campus right um other than that undergrad was like whatever but in graduate school it's different especially at the phd level because somebody on the faculty has to be willing to um, be your sponsor basically they have to be willing to be your research and um like academic mentor and advisor in order for you to even be accepted to the program that's just getting in right like somebody on the faculty has to be like yes i fucks with her i want to work with her i applied like you know the i don't i don't mean to say this in a way because i know like for some people like academics are like really a struggle but for me they never have been it's like i'm i'm good at school like i just it's like the answer is there okay i'm all right you know so it's like my grades were always exceptional and so when i was like coming out of my master's program i applied to all the top um well, even before then, um, I applied to PhD programs and master's programs coming out of undergrad because I knew I could do it academically, right? But when it comes to, there's whole departments, all white faculty, all straight faculty, all cis faculty, right? Like nobody never seen an injustice in a whole life. And they, and they looking at you thinking, oh yeah, I can, I can mentor you. Like you can be someone that I can work with on research. It just wasn't happening. I didn't get, I applied to like 12 programs. I didn't get, I heard radio silence from 10 out of the 12 I applied to. And this is me graduating, like, you know, all the honors, summa cum, uh, full ride, blah, blah, blah. Name the academic achievement. I had it. So the myth of if you excel and you be great, the doors are going to open. The doors weren't opening. A lie, a lie. Um, <laughs> it was, it was a lie, and the truth was not present. Um, I, I remember. So I got, I, I ended up staying at Auburn because somebody did want to mentor me there. One of my um, psychology professors that I had been working in her research lab, and um, she, she knew the kind of work that I wanted to do, even before I kind of really had words for it. I definitely wasn't using language like queer people of color. I was just like, you know, like people aren't straight and they're black and <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's like this is, I want to provide mental health services to like folks like me basically. And so she saw that and she like encouraged it. And so I stayed for my master's degree there. But when I was interviewing for PhD programs, Diamond, I went up in this PhD interview with a rainbow shirt on, rainbow button up, like, you know, the kind of like uh, cheesy old people be wearing at Pride. That's what I was wearing to my PhD interviews. I, like, I need you to understand. I was wearing it on my sleeve because it was still fresh to me, right? Like It's like I, I was like, I was scared all these years. I'm not going to be scared no more. So mm -hmm. I just like, Went up in there with this rainbow button up. I probably had on a bow tie too. Just like sitting there like, mm -hmm, yes, I'm interviewing <laughs> for the PhD program. Um, 
And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't get like feedback. Like I said, I applied to 12 programs. I didn't even get rejections from 10 of them. And then one of them, I got waitlisted and then Syracuse uh, accepted me. Um, so I first came to Syracuse for the counselor education program. Um, and it's a little bit different than marriage and family therapy, what I ended up getting my PhD in because it's individual focus and marriage and family therapy is, is like systems and relations focus. Right. Um, which is where I should have been the whole time. But again, I didn't know. Right. So you don't know until you know. I, I've always been doing systems work because I'm talking about black queer folks. So obviously right. it's systems. And even though I was that little gay, I was like 23, like interviewed so boldly, so colorfully, was very open and transparent about being black, lesbian, and a girl. They tried, they like at every turn tried to shut me down. So I remember a specific incident with this supervision class I had to take. Everybody had to write a final paper and I wanted to write my final paper on supervising queer students of color. The professor called me in her office after class and was like, um, why would you write a paper on students we don't have? It would be like supervising a unicorn is the words that she used like, and said that to me. Um, and so I, I didn't say anything. I wish I could tell you that, you know, I clapped back and I said, so I didn't, I didn't say anything. I was just like stunned. First right. of all, <laughs> how have you not heard of me? Like I'm like I'm I'm here, and also I knew other like queer students of color in the program. So, so I left her office. I wrote the paper on supervising queer students of color. Um, she refused to grade it, uh, and and I'm sitting there like just defending my paper, like not even defending my right to exist that like I should be supervised. So I'm sitting there defending like that my paper should be graded. And, um, I guess somebody had told her or she had heard or whatever. And she was like, well, if you would have told me that you were a queer, I would have let you write the paper. But since you didn't tell me that you were a queer, um, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna grade it. That's what she said to me in class, in class, Diamond. Um, and so we went back and forth, went all the way up to the dean of the college about this paper. And she eventually ended up grading it and she gave me a D on the paper. Mm. And so I need folks <laughs> who might listen to this to understand, like at the PhD level, I don't know if this is the same for all schools, but a lot of schools, a C in a PhD class means you failed it, right? Like a C means you have to retake that course. So she gave me a D to like guarantee that whatever else I had done in that class, I was going to get a C, right? I was going to get a C. Um, with what this paper was worth for my grade. So basically she failed me with this D on the paper. Um, I refused to rewrite it. And it just, I feel like that was the the moment that just started this domino effect in the counseling program of me just refusing, like just not doing these things. Um, they would make comments about the way that I dressed, about my hair, uh, it was a lot of it was just like black femme hatred, but so much of it was just like exacerbated by the fact that I had the like nerve to be gay. Like um, at the time, my girlfriend was also a PhD student 
at STU and she would like come drop stuff off at my office in there and they would just have a fit every time after she left the office. It would always be some kind of conflict. Um, I was helping the undergrads organize on campus at the time and they always tried to like paint it in these really inappropriate ways that I was spending too much time with like um, my student, my women, the, the women in my class that they had heard that I had like spent the night with a student and stuff. So they just, they just really, really made it clear like where they stood around like um, people of color who are queer. I ended up getting really, really involved in the organizing on campus because of my experience, like what I was experiencing in my own program. But it goes back to what you were saying earlier about how we have to be, um, we don't have anybody else. So we have to be the rebels for ourselves. We have to be the rebel rousers. We have to be the people who are defending each other. We have to be the ones, we have to be our cheerleaders. We have to be our warriors. We have to be this for ourselves because there's nobody else. Everybody's looking around and you see this injustice that's happening. She had the boldness to say this in class and then do this. And I know you, the other professors, y'all probably talked about it or, or something, or, or you would talk about somebody else and there's nobody there to defend you. So you had, to do it for yourself in the people in your community. Yeah, yeah. Because there were other students of color sitting in that class. There were other um, gay students who were not of color sitting in that class. As she said, really like hateful um, like things to me, right? And everybody wants to like come up to me after class and be like, oh, that was so hard. But it's like, you wasn't there when I needed you, right? So <laughs> this is like, this, yeah, this is not helpful. Like, um, so just because like I shared these identities with these people, they still didn't see me as like, you know, what did what did James Baldwin say in that open letter to uh, um to Angela Davis? Like, uh we have to we have to show up for you now because if we don't show up for you, like they're gonna come for us tomorrow, right? So it's like no nobody was living by that when when uh this woman was telling me that supervising queer students of color is like supervising a unicorn, you know, like nobody was on that wave. Um, and, but I was, which put me like out of community with them, but in community with like black queer folks. Right. Um, and so I want to, I want to really, I want to really hone in on some context. She just explained how she got the, how you get into this program is built into the system. The gatekeeping part about yes. the system is built in it. She just explained that there has to be somebody who says, I vouch for this motherfucker. Right. Be in this program. So that puts her in a position where I have somebody who vouched for me and now I have somebody who is my enemy Mm -hmm. stopping me from going forward. So I'm not only being blocked from my own success, I'm making this person who vouched for me almost like look bad, right? Yeah. Almost yeah. look bad or an almost um and, and this is built into the system. So the system is pressuring you to get in line, to yeah. to conform Absolutely. and to yeah. um to be a good little Negro. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um we want you to talk about your identities when it's like open, um, like open house and we trying to recruit students to check boxes. Um, which like fast forward. So they ended up canceling my funding, which like, so for most PhD programs, I would say, oh, if they're not funding you, don't do it. 
but um, they fund you, right? They like pay your tuition and they give you a, a monthly stipend or a bi-monthly stipend. So they canceled my funding like halfway through the year because I was, I was organizing, right? I was like, this is a racist, homophobic campus and I'm not going to be quiet about it. Um, and then they closed the rape advocacy center. So then I really started organizing. Um, and so they canceled my funding and, uh, yeah. And essentially like kicked me out. Right. Cause I, oh, who the hell can afford $74,000 for tuition on top of living expenses a year to finish this degree. And the like Dean of the college at the time was like, well, we'll just transfer you to this other program that's still in the school of education. That way, our statistics for, like, black women and, like, queer students don't change, right? So it's like, you, you actually don't care about me and my experience. You don't care about numbers. You don't care about my life, right? You care about, like, like me as a statistic, like, something that you can keep record of. Um, and so I, I obviously didn't do that. I was like, fuck you. Um, yeah, but it, it's exactly, it's built in. And even I see it, I see how like people come here vibrant and then like the color just gets sucked out of them because the whole way that PhD programs are structured is like, you know, white. It's, it's white, it's straight, it's really elitist. It's, it's, fu- it's very function is to keep people out, right? So, so like- we just watched last night or night before we watched the um, uh, interview with Angela Davis and Nikki Giovanni yeah. and they were yeah. being interviewed by two ladies of girl trick. Um, and one of the, one of the questions, and I actually hate when people ask this question because um, I just don't think it's, um, I don't think it's a good question, <laughs> but one of the questions was, one of the questions they asked was how did, when when this was going on, how did you get through it? Or, yeah. or no, 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 not that. How did how did you get the strength to get through yeah. that? And so, what you're extra- explaining to me is exactly a, one of those moments where you don't know you have the strength. You're just right. in it. You're just right. in it and dealing with it as it goes on. It's not about me being this strong hero, heroine. It's about yeah. I'm in this situation. I know what's right and what's wrong. Mm-hmm. I know that I cannot, um, I cannot give on what I know is right. I cannot right. Give, on, give up on who I am. I cannot yeah. give up on my identity. I cannot give up on and conform to this level of oppression, this level of um, conformity that just does not feel right in my spirit. And Mm -hmm. I know I will spiritually die if I give up. (laughs) I know that I will. So it's not about the strength. It's not about being strong. It's just about I'm in this situation and I'm trying to make the best of it. So in your particular situation, how did you... What were the tools that you used to make the best of it? Like those women, first of all, like uh, I, I, I tweeted this to you earlier, but like not just seeing them as like cultural references, like, you know, like they they had stuff to say about my natural hair, about my locks. And I wasn't just like, well, Angela Davis or I started Shakur, so I got my locks. No, like I, I saw them as live liberationists, right? Like, they they wasn't they wasn't out here like being cute like what Nikki Giovanni said in that interview is like they they had work to do right they they realized 
what their mothers like couldn't do and what they they had to do right and i i don't like we're both oldest children and i don't like underestimate like that impact on us too because I was hurting, like make no mistake. I I was the most depressed I had ever been at any point in my life. Like, um, I could not take them the constant, constant um conversations about my hair. That I mean, I just straight up shaved my head one day. I just like cut it, it was all jacked up, and thankfully I went to this barber, Suntrana, a black lesbian, who like gave me, you know, like a Caesar and like a, a <laughs> actual thing. But I shaved my head from the stress of them, like always having something to say about my hair. Right. But I knew it, it was like that moment that I knew I'm like, I have two little sisters. If I'm shaving my head because some like panel of white people have something to say about my hair. What is what are they going to have to do after me? Right. And I was also teaching. So I, I saw master students who who were who shared identities with me and some of them who didn't some of them were just like clueless white girls who because of who i am were realizing things about how patriarchy won't save them either right and so like i i've always had this thought of like if i bite this if i eat this it's gonna hurt me but like all the other girls behind me that is also gonna hurt so i can't like i can't i can't swallow this i'm not gonna let you say this wild shit about queer students of color. I'm not going to let you say this wild shit about people's hair, about people's accents, about people's whatever, because whoever's coming behind me, like I'm, so the thing about a PhD program is like, um, I think my, the most impactful thing that I did was this, this is not going to be the same after I leave. Right. Right. Like, Like this, this shit is not going to be the same. Like y'all not going to have the same standards of professionalism of what, of what a PhD student is supposed to dress, look, or talk like, um, like another, another gay girl from Queens who went to college in Alabama can, can like go into these spaces now, you know? And it's like, that always, always plays for me because the things that saved me in those moments, like if I don't know where I would be if like those women didn't write their stories, you know, or if like I had never heard of these like black women, like Fannie Lou Hamer, like that same kind of um, energy. It's like, I got to go back and face Mississippi with two seats. You know, it's like, I, I'm like, my people, my people ain't send me here for two seats. And that's, that's the exact energy that I like went through with, right? It's like, I didn't come, I didn't come here for this degree, right? Like I, I came here cause I need the credential to do what I want to do, but I came here because there's going to be more than two seats. I'm not going to be for four years. I was the only black, black, not just black. I was the only student of color period in my program. And I'm like, after me, that's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> there's right. going to be more, there's going to be more than one seat for a student of color. Right. And I, I remember in school, when I was in school, that it was people who were saying, you know, you're so brave. And, and I was like, but, but y'all, it's not about, it's, it wasn't about brave. It was about me actually seeing the power of me being in this situation. I didn't. It wasn't a, I wasn't fearful, but I was the bitch that was coming in the cafeteria making all you motherfuckers move. 
for right. whatever, for whatever, it, somebody can look at that as like, oh my God, I'm the, you're treating me like I have a disease. I didn't think of it like that. I had been past that in high school. I went through that shit in high school. By the time I got to college, it was, oh, I was like, oh, so when I come in this motherfucker, y'all going to leave? You know what I'm going to do? Every time I come in this bitch, I'm going to go to the football table because I know you yeah. bitches going to get up. Yeah. <laughs> And, yep. one, and it was funny. Once one of the one of the alpha dudes started clocking that I was doing it on purpose, it wasn't mm-hmm. just oh y'all thought that I was being shamed by y'all mm-hmm. getting up. <laughs> That's why y'all mm-hmm. was doing it. Y'all mm-hmm. thought I was being shamed and alienated and blah 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 blah. But once you realize that I was seeing the power in it, and I was purposely sitting my ass down and mm-hmm. making y'all ass get up, then he sat there on that table. <laughs> he sat down at table and ate his food with me. Mm-hmm. It was, it, this is, I wish if I ever get a movie about my life, they better put this motherfucker in it. <laughs> because you, you, it, you could have cut the air with a knife. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. sitting at one end and he's sitting at the other, refusing to get up. And the whole other people have moved, and they was like, "What one is gonna get up? <laughs> what? What is? Why is he not getting up?" Because yeah. he saw the power in me. He saw yep. that I was utilizing my power. I wasn't just some shamed ass trans woman that y'all have drawn, that y'all have tried to scald with water, that y'all have yeah. done all these things to stop me. I'm still in this bitch. I get up every motherfucking morning and go to my classes and I look good doing it, put my makeup on, put my hair on, be fly. Y'all ain't never gonna stop me. And seeing yeah. feeling that power, and I can't tell where it come from. But I know, just like you know, my mother was a bitch like that. Right. right. <laughs> Your mother exactly. going up to that principal and saying, no, this shit is not going to happen. Was a fighter on, it may be some consequence to this, but I'm doing it. You got me fucked up. And my mother was like that, even though she had some issues. But my mother was like that. And I knew my mother taught me, you can have whatever you want. Don't let these motherfuckers tell you that you can't. And. I was just dealing with it. I was. It wasn't about. I didn't know I had the strength to deal with it when I was coming in. I didn't know. I yes, exactly, dealing. exactly. It's like you don't, you don't, you don't know, um, like what you're made of until it's tested, right? And until it's a choice, it's an option. Like, like people, people experience the same things I experienced, and they they don't choose to make room for other people. They don't choose to like say something, right? And it's like, yeah, when you recognize the the power, like, uh, yeah, like that, just that visual of you sitting at that table and him, him, he, in that moment, he saw what you, you already knew, right? Like I have the power to make you move. Um, and I, I definitely had moments where I felt that. And it's like, I didn't. In all this, all this time, I have been like second guessing myself. Like, am I supposed to be here? Am I smart enough? You know, all the things that you know. And, imposter syndrome is really just like uh, the the remnants of like you constantly being presented with your absence, right? Like, right. like nobody like you has ever done this before. Um, you're the first one, or the first person to do this like you was that or not. Um, that constant being presented with your absence, it really can fuck with you. It really can. I don't, I don't got to tell you that. You know that. Yeah. And being the first is not like easy, you know, but I had all this shit around like, am I even like smart enough to do this? Like, I don't, I don't even really like research for real, you know, <laughs> like, like, and, and, and even though you had the proof, like you had yeah. been Excel. And these motherfuckers who are probably 
bland as fuck, who wasn't as brilliant as you, was a, because of the power that they had within this structural system, they were able to infiltrate your, your security and what you knew you could do just based on what they're doing. And it can make you, that imposter syndrome can come in and they can, just because of the power that they could wield in giving you a D. Right. They were able to undermine what you knew. I'm already brilliant coming in this motherfucker. I'm already yep. bland. I'm already yep. better than half of the people here. Right. And you show it, but you purposely are giving me a D. You pur purposely are making this more di difficult for me about my fucking hair. My hair. Get out of here. So yes, yep. you, you. It's totally true that we can that we can elect these bland, especially white motherfuckers, but not just them. Mm -hmm. Cis hat people, black, whatever. Right. We can right. we can let them infiltrate our mind because we are the first. Right. Right. Yeah. And um, like what Angela said was that like her when she realized her fear was coming from. Um, this thought that she was alone or that she was the only one mm. when she realized that and she was like wait I'm not alone I got people in France with like free Angela like flyers out I you know I don't even know <laughs> know them people but they got it or like I'm not the first black woman that the um, government has tried to like kill you know and like I when I, I feel like that was it for me too. Like it wasn't just that I was um, an activist or whatever. I got in community, right? Like I was organizing. I was with other like black and brown, queer and trans folks. And once I realized that I, I'm not the only one, I, I felt, <laughs> bitch, I was like unstoppable then. I It's like I already felt powerful because I saw how little old me just me by myself was disrupting the fuck out of this program. Like they really couldn't handle me. They could not handle me. Right. Like I would come into the room and I would see everybody like roll their eyes and like shift in their chair. Oh, like grass. <laughs> bitches grass. Yes, <laughs> you know? Uh, and even, even like, even other black women that I would have expected to have my back in those moments, I think there were parts of me that they had always been told were so wrong for themselves too, that they couldn't show up for me because it would mean undoing all these things that they internalized about being told how to dress, being told how to wear your hair, being told how to, how to be safe and successful in academia. I'm also dark skinned, fat, gay, you know? So it's like, all this, all the levels that they would have had to peel back to be like, I see you. Um, it was just too much for them, you know. So they were uncomfortable too. It wasn't just like these white professors. It was a lot of folks that I was expecting community from. Yeah. But that moment when you realize you're not the only one and you won't be the last one, I'm. I was unstoppable. <laughs> In Audre Lorde's piece, um, The Uses of Anger, I know you know mm -hmm. Audre Lorde. She was all about um, inclusionary feminism before it was trendy like it is right now. Right. Um, and this is what she said. This is a part, a piece from it. What woman here is so amored in her own oppression that she cannot see her heel print upon another woman's face? Mm -hmm. 
what woman's terms of oppression have become precious and unnecessary to her as a ticket into the fold of righteousness away from the cold winds of self-scrutiny. So for me, this is somebody who's telling you, you have to look at what you're doing to oppress yes. people. You have yes. to look at, you have to look at yourself and see how you are not pulling somebody up mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how that plays out in your own oppression, in your own mm -hmm. liberation. Um, yeah. What makes that important to your work? Girl, that's everything. So like, oh, <laughs> that's exactly what we were talking about when we were talking about um, uh, Stormy and Marsha, right? Like when, when we're in these situations, when we exist in all of these like multiplicative ways that, that don't give us access at all to patriarchy, like there's some, there's some things that you have to like readjust in looking at. I was talking earlier about like Cheryl Clark and the way she talks about um, like the interconnectedness between um, black trans women struggles and black lesbian struggles and black trans lesbian struggles. Right. It's like when you are intimately, not just I, not just identity, but like when who you love is divested from like patriarchy, when like a cishet man is not like the center of your like desire, you are choosing to live dangerously, right? And even even if it is like a cishet man at the center of your desire, um, but that but like that loving in secret thing that we were talking about earlier too, it's like even even if that's the case, like you you are living dangerously in patriarchy because it all these systems seek to see us like nowhere, right? Um and so then who you got? Who do you turn to? When um, the buck has to stop somewhere, like Blanca said, <laughs> impose, you know, it's like, yeah. it's, it's only so far that shit can roll down the hill before it stops. And then you look up and you look around and you see who's around you. Like that's, I think that's why our like historic and current and intimate like struggles have always been like so interconnected and like where they, where they descent, is that the word? Like where they separate? where they're not the same, it just reveals more of like what we need to fight for to all be free. Right. So right. like our, um, that's something that I learned a lot from reading Audre Lord. Like our differences are sometimes like more advantageous to us in understanding oppression than our similarities. Right. Right. Um, yeah. That I feel like that's all I hope to do is like put in conversation um, the ways in which like black queer women have always had to show up for each other yeah. because a lot, a lot of times we're the ones who like Nikita says this thing to me a lot. Like when, when you are in all the margins, you end up slipping through all the cracks mm. and, and that's, that's just it. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. And so on your podcast, um, you are blessed with the honor to have um, the uh, the elder Barbara Smith, bitch. When I when that when that motherfucking title came up, I was like, yes! <laughs> you, you, I still can't believe that. Like, <laughs> oh, if you're listening and you don't know who Barbara Smith is, she is just a just a powerhouse. Um, historical living legend that was a part of um, Kabaki yeah. River Collective 
and they just made a statement and we wouldn't be talking about identity politics if it wasn't right. for these right. women. They set they the standard for yeah. back in the day. Like we, it's right. trendy now when we talk about intersectionality and um, Kimberly Crenshaw, all the amazing work that she did. It's trendy right. now, but that statement was made in the 70s, right? In the 70s, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that this, this has been, they have been talking about these conversations um, for decades. And so um, on your podcast, you have had amazing women. You had um, um, Barbara Smith. You had um, um, Charlene Crothers. You had um, Alexis Pauline Gums. And you even had me on the show. And what I said, yeah, and, <laughs> and, 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 and what I see in all of these women, myself, Charlene, Barbara, just being in the, in, in, in not, I bow down to her, but what we use is our expertise to be able to um, push our culture forward, to be able to heal our culture. And one of the themes that your podcast does, and I hear you say this a lot, um, not every episode, but you know, that the whole point of you going through the bullshit that you went through in these schools is so that you can take the tools that you learn and bring it back to your community and heal yeah. them. Mm-hmm. And for me, that is what the content that you bring on your show, it really heals me. That's why I have you here. Um, if y'all don't know, we had, we had, re- we hadn't pressed record uh, in the beginning. So we went through a lot. But the reason why I have Montanique here is because she is one of the people in the past three years who has come into my life and sharpened my sword and, and been a reflection and a push to go to a, to, to go even further, knowing mm-hmm. that my expertise, I, whatever expertise that I have, I have something to offer and I need to bring it back to the community and heal our community. Tell me why that is important in your, cause you're a therapist, you're a doctor, you are in family therapy, you are a part of the mental, mental health profession. And so how, how do you bring all this black feminist theory into your work to heal the community? Um, well, I feel like where, okay, where do I start? I gotta think about this like it's the, like it's the defense, right? <laughs> so, um, so first of all, I want to start with what you were sharing about, like what all, like what all of y'all who have, who we've had as guests on the podcast also share is like, the, the ways that you see, like, yes, your life stories. I think um, all of y'all have shared your life stories in ways that resonate with, like, other folks. But your edges are so stuck to and connected to community, right? Like, I think that's that's the thing. It's like, um, I, am, I am not just screaming uh, <laughs> on a corner about being a Black lesbian for the sake of, like, a spotlight on me. But I see the ways that, like, my, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw used the word intersectional for a reason. Like, my my identities intersect with so many other people. Like, like, like your liberation is bound to my liberation, and it would it would take an upending of all these systems of oppression for both of us to be free, right? And I think that's also what everybody that we've had on the uh, podcast like shares. Um, and you know, before there was intersectionality, there was simultaneity, which right. is the word that the, the Kambahi River Collective used. And um, you know, exactly what they were saying is like all of our identities we experience at the same time. 
So if something is happening to me as a black person, it is happening to me as a woman and as a lesbian as well, right? So it's not yes. like, oh, this happened because I'm gay. And so then like the gay folks got to deal with that. You know, it's like, no, this is happening to all of what I am. And I think that the way black feminism informs that, oh my gosh, like, I think because I've been, the past two days, I've just been so in this conversation, but like, and it's so informative. And because Angela Davis is just like a master, um, I feel like her interviews, um, Toni Morrison's interviews, it's just like, this is how, <laughs> this, this is how you take a trash ass question and still infuse it with like the freedom of black folks, right? Um, and so, so when I'm thinking about like what I do, First of all, why I call myself a black feminist, it's really important to me to call myself after like the women who who are doing things that I want to be doing or that has saved my life over and over again. Um, what they call themselves, right? So like I use the I use the um label lesbian, um, even though it might not even encompass in full like my life experiences or um like a lot of times folks think that lesbian is a really like transphobic label too, because of what like fucked up lesbians have done in the past, you know? Um, and so I think intentionally about using the word lesbian because it's the word that Barbara Smith uses to describe herself. Um, and it, you know, there's no ambiguity in it. I'm showing up intimately, politically and personally for women. Um, and like when I use women as an inclusive term, you know, femmes included, uh, folks who don't identify as women, but fall outside of the comfort of patriarchy. Um, Cheryl Clark, like th these were, these were really, uh, the first written, um, things that I had representations of, of like black queer folks, right? So like on paper, reading it, making <laughs> making sense of it in my head these women were calling themselves black feminists and they were calling themselves lesbians right and so i'm like if i'm gonna live in that legacy and like these are the things that inform me that's also what i'm gonna call myself right um and and what angela said was like i didn't know this was um like feminism you know i wasn't calling it feminism i was calling it revolution i was a revolutionary but I always knew that a revolution has to have a gender, a class, a race analysis, right? Like it needs to be holistic. And you know that because you live as a black queer woman, right? <laughs> like, and by you rejecting feminism based on white women co-opting it, right. you're letting them win. <laughs> like there is, we have been a part of this. We have been planting the seeds. Yeah. Yeah, that's what she said. She said feminism is the work that black women have have always done, have, especially in, in the United States. Like feminists are black women and that that we continue to do. Right. So so any um, I think about this in the same way I think about popular music. Like if you want to be if you want to be like about it or or <laughs> consider it like with it, you are a feminist. Right. Like if you. 
nobody is checking for anybody who doesn't have any kind of like gender analysis or like um like gender expansive concepts of of the world right now you know so it's like and, and, and think about the popular girls like so do you know anything about country music country music mm, not really but- okay so <laughs> the the popular girls in country even though they were seeped in white supremacy blah 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 blah, blah mm-hmm. They had some type of um, feminine. I just learned a song by Loretta Lynn called "The Pill," <laughs> and it was about her being on the pill. And there was a feminist analysis where she was telling some truth about how she can be locked in a marriage and barefoot and pregnant without if she didn't have that. So that's a feminist. Um, you know, that's a feminist song. And when we talk about Dolly Parton and her songs, if you look at every genre of music, Dixie Chicks, when we talk about rap, when we talk about Little Kim, when we talk about um, 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 Roxanne Chante, when we talk about um, uh, Queen Latifah, these are, they play with ideas, even though they, like Kim was cishet, da 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 she was playing with lesbian ideas, she was... Yeah, so this in every genre you can think of, right. from pop right. to yeah. now and back then, those are the popular girls. Right, right. This new um, remix with Nicki Minaj and Doja Cat, like, Nicki got this line in there where she say, I used to be bi, now I'm hetero. You know, it's like, it's like all, this, <laughs> all these ways that, um, like, whatever is considered mainstream or popular around um, gender, Black women created it, right? Like, when wh- whatever is considered mainstream or popular around, like, a revolutionary idea, it came from a Black woman first, right? So, I think we concede too much when we just completely throw away, um, like, feminism as a term. And also, like, that, that like white women invented this shit. <laughs> like that we that that's, like that's literally a hotel staple. Yeah. That's like giving them way too much credit. It's like they, they didn't. Cause if they did, they would be the ones that we continue to go back to as touchstones for this, right? So it's like even though um history tries to write us out of it, we still like um I think their generation was like the the revolution generation. Our generation is like the um, and then I think the hip hop generation was like the culture generation, like um, like solidifying black culture. And I think our generation is the free generation. Like, what do we what what does it truly mean to be uh, black and free, right? And so that's what I think we're doing. We're doing, you know, it's like we're we're living into that. And I'm still like working through. It. I've been like journaling about this, but what that means is that we've we've gone back to and and took the dust off of. The writings, the interviews, the protest signs from our like ancestors and ancestors who've been saying this shit, like who have been saying it, right? And like those are the roots. And I think that's what Black feminism does for me and my work. Is there's nothing about diversity, inclusion, equity, social justice, revolution that you're gonna say to me that I can't trace back to a Black person saying it first. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that's what it does, and and it also reminds me that like all of our experiences are happening to all of our identities at the same time. Mm. It's like 
you know, any issue that I'm dealing with is a lesbian issue because I'm a lesbian. So, like, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, it totally answered the question. Tell the people where they can find you. Tell the people, of course, we know you have a podcast. I'm going to have all that linked in the bottom. Yes. Give them your social media. Um, so I am on all the things at Better Than Money, B-E-T-T-A-T-H-A-N, Money, M-O-N-E-Y. Um, that's my Instagram, my Twitter. I don't really use Facebook, so um, <laughs> not <even. laughs> My Tumblr is QueerWalk, so all, all other things QueerWalk, at QueerWalkPod, P-O-D. So that's where y'all can find me. Yay. Well, thank you for joining me. Um, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you for being you. Thank you for being brilliant. Thank you for being a reflection of my work. Thank you for just all that you do. I just, I, I you know, we know we love each other. <laughs> we know. And, you know, it's just, you know. I love you, <laughs> So I'll see you later. And thank you for watching, y'all. Hey brother, hey brother, hey sister, hey sister, hey sister.